How about this Santa, huh? Man, I think about Santa, I think this has got to be the most religious guy ever. What this guy does every year for Jesus' birthday is bananas. I mean, Jesus was great, don't get me wrong. He had a quote for everything, and he did a bunch of stuff that was bananas. But couldn't you say the same thing about, like, I don't know, the guy who wrote Charlie Brown? Charles Schultz, an icon of Christmas in his own right. He had a quote for everything, and he did a bunch of stuff that was bananas as relative to the history of the American cartoon. But you know when we talk about Charles Schultz? Not ever. Not even on his birthday, and you know how I know that? It would have been his 100th birthday last month, and nobody knows that. It was the centennial year of the veritable savior of the American comic strip, and no one cares. And the reason that no one cares is that every year on Charles Schultz's birthday, there isn't an enormous man-elf dishing out presents only to kids who believe in Charles Schultz. That's what Santa does for Jesus. A single silver-haired saint is carrying the entire legacy of the entire Christian religion on his sleigh. Now imagine how different Charles Schultz's legacy as a cartoonist would be if every year on his birthday, a fat angel came to your door with presents and said, hello, I am Santa Schultz. I have presents, I have enough presents to float your local economy during the drabest months of winter, and I'll give them to everyone in your town, but only if you believe in Charles Schultz. What would you say to that? You would say, I sure believe in Charles Schultz. That he was a person? Sure. But then what if Santa said, yeah, but did, do you really believe in him? Do you believe that everything he said was true? You'd say, he certainly spoke the truth in his art. I don't know that there was literally a dog named Snoopy and a bird called Woodstock who he held as a dear friend, but I, I think those little boys who he drew over and over said many things which were truest to us all. Okay. But now what would you do? If Santa next took you by the shoulders and said, listen, bitch, I've got a bag full of Hess trucks. And if you want one, I want you to say that Snoopy was literally a dog. I don't want you to parse through the stories of Charles Schultz and extract their wisdom as relevant to your own life. I want you to say those stories were not stories. They were real things that happened to real little boys and dogs. Now what would you say? And when Santa asked us, do you love him? We'd all say, I love him, as we were picturing Linus. And as we were holding little dolls of Linus and Lucy and Hess trucks, that love would become real. We'd all love Charles Schultz. No one would give a fuck about Garfield. I had a neighbor growing up who did love Charles Schultz. Charlie Greenstein was his name. I guess you'd, you'd say he loved peanuts. He appreciated Charles Schultz. I had another neighbor on the other side who loved Jesus. She did not appreciate anything. Meanest little girl I ever met. Her name was Lucy. She loved Jesus, loved the Bible, never read another book. Around the time she turned 18, she read something in the Bible that made her think Jesus Christ might appreciate it if she shaved her head. I don't know what it was. Now, I don't know everything about Jesus, but I do know that he made his stance on long hair pretty well known. But when old Lucy turned 18, she shaved her head for Jesus. Then she hiked to the top of the tallest mountain in New Jersey for Jesus. That made a little more sense to me, you know. 
If you want to get closer to Jesus, you figure Jesus probably in heaven. Heaven pretty high up by all accounts. If I climb this mountain, I might could get a better look at him. But when old Lucy dragged her bald head to the top of Mount Baldy, she didn't see heaven. She just saw a bunch of old monks sitting around shaving their heads. So Lucy asked the monks, hey monks, what do I have to do to become as close to Jesus as possible? Monks told her, become a monk. Live at the top of Mount Baldy. Or they wrote that down, I guess, because to be a monk at the top of Mount Baldy, you have to take a vow of silence. But regardless of the format, old Lucy heeded their message and took a vow of silence for Jesus Christ. I don't know why. I don't know everything about Jesus, but I know he was pretty well known as a guy who liked to talk. But my neighbor took a vow of silence for Jesus Christ, and she lived at the top of Mount Baldy for two years for Jesus Christ. And she only came back down once to tell me and my other neighbor, who likes peanuts, that she was as close as possible to Jesus. That's what she said, and that's how she said it. And I know that's how she said it, because she couldn't say it at all. She had to write it down, vow of silence, you know. I still have that little sign she made somewhere in my house. It says, I am as close to Jesus as possible, Jew. That sign was more for my neighbor than me, but Charlie Greenstein, he didn't want to keep it. I can't imagine why. Lucy worked so hard on it. I'm pretty sure it was written in blood. Plus, it's just funny when you flip the sign over because there's a whole other conversation on the back that she scribbled down while she was fighting with my neighbor Charlie. Old Lucy was always fighting with my neighbor Charlie because Charlie was Jewish and Lucy loved Jesus. And Lucy believed that Jewish people killed Jesus. But that doesn't make sense. Jesus was a very talkative Jew, as we now know. The irony of this predicament is something which Charlie tried to impress upon Lucy from literally the moment they met. I know that because I was there the moment they met. Charlie moved next door when I was about eight years old. Back then, it seemed like the entire world was as small as a single New Jersey side street. And when Charlie showed up next door, it was like an alien had crash-landed into that world. Everyone was talking about it. And me and my neighbor Lucy were everyone. Lucy came to knock on my door. She said, you have a new neighbor. I said, I know. She said, we should go kill him. I said, I don't know. Why would we want to do that? She said, your new neighbor is Jewish and Jews killed Jesus. I said, why would they want to do that? I couldn't imagine why anyone would want to kill Jesus. He was the man. He had the long hair, didn't care. He went around partying with prostitutes, washing their feet, and then turning that water into wine. He seemed like a total rock star to me, and I didn't even know what a rock star was. My whole world was the block I grew up on. Still, I knew Jesus was a rock star, and I knew that I loved him. And I didn't know why anyone in the world wanted to kill him. So I decided to join Lucy, pull up on the lone Jewish individual in my personal world, and see if he might have an answer to that question. And I figured that in the likely event that his answer was not good enough, I'd join Lucy and kill him. But of course, Charlie had a great answer. Even as a little kid, Charlie was one of those people who had an answer for everything. He was playing in his sandbox when we approached him, and I remember he dropped his toy shovel. I remember because he asked, hey, can you pick up that shovel? To which Lucy replied, no way, I'm here to kill you. 
Charlie said, now why are you here to kill me? And Lucy said, because you are a Jew and the Jews killed Jesus. Charlie said, I'll definitely be needing that shovel then. Why will you be needing that shovel, I asked. He said, because I want to kill you with it. I said, why would you want to kill us? Charlie said, because you're Italians and the Italians killed Jesus. Lucy fires right back. Italians didn't kill Jesus, Judas did. Did not, said Charlie. And Lucy told him, did so. The Italians loved Jesus. Did not. Did so. And then Charlie switched around on her. Did so, he said. Did not, said Lucy. Ha-ha, said Charlie. You just admit that the Italians didn't love Jesus. Charlie was always more clever than the rest of us, probably because he read more peanuts. Did not, said Lucy. Did so. The Italians did so hate Jesus, said Charlie. They hated him so much they killed him. And then they decided they loved him. And then they spent the next thousand years making paintings of Jesus. And most of those paintings are of Jesus getting killed. And every time every Italian painter ever painted Jesus getting killed, he painted him to look Italian. I liked the way Charlie explained things. He sort of reminded me of Linus. After Lucy picked up his shovel and threw it at him, I invited Charlie over to my house and we watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special. It was his idea. I told him I thought that was funny on account of my early indoctrination from the Charlie Brown Christmas special was part of the reason I wanted to kill him for killing Jesus. He told me that isn't funny. It's ironic. And Charlie has been struggling to explain life's little ironies to the Italian population of New Jersey ever since. It's like when we were all in our 30s and Lucy came down from the top of Mount Baldy to tell us about her vow of silence and how she was as close to Jesus as possible. Or more accurately, show Charlie a sign that said, I'm as close to Jesus as possible, Jew. Charlie said, ironically, Lucy, your vow of silence and your little anti-Semitic sign make you quite different from Jesus, who was, like myself, a distinctively chatty Jew. Lucy flipped around her sign and scribbled the words, shut it, blockhead. You got any idea how long I've been silent? There's no one closer to Jesus than me. Charlie read it quick and he said, sure there is. Who, Lucy wrote. And Charlie said, Santa. Lucy wrote, Santa. Charlie said, Santa. Lucy wrote, listen, blockhead. The word she kept writing wasn't actually blockhead, but I can't say the word she kept writing. So I'll say that she said, listen, blockhead. I shaved my head, I climbed to the top of a mountain for Jesus. I lived on that mountain. I spent 10 years there and I female castrated myself all for Jesus Christ. There's no one closer to Jesus than me, not even Saint. Charlie said, I think about Santa, I think that's gotta be the most religious guy possible. That's a guy who celebrated Jesus the right way. A lot of people celebrate Jesus the wrong way. Jesus was a talkative Jew who loved long hair and partied with prostitutes that had the same name as his mother. How is he celebrated by those who claim to love him most? With shaved heads and vows of silence and sexual mutilation. It's like, you know, Jesus Christ, that fellow who walked on water and then turned it into wine? You know how I'm gonna celebrate him? With a life of staunch sobriety. You know that guy who fed the many from a single loaf of bread? I think I'll starve myself for him. Now Santa, there's a big fat fella who saw a giver and gave even bigger. In fact, Jesus would have probably started giving out presents himself if he hadn't been killed by the Italians. 
Lucy wrote back, Now don't get into the anti-Italian sentiments, Charlie. Jesus was killed by the Jews, specifically the betrayal of Judas. That was her argument. She was sticking to it. Charlie tried to explain the irony. He said, Lucy, let me explain this to you. This is like if I found your address in the phone book and then I went to your house and I murdered you with a shovel. Then I went to every other house in town and knocked on every door and I told everyone who'd listen that I murdered you with a shovel. And I'm talking every door in town. I'm talking I'm circling all the way back to your house. And by the time I circle back to your house, I've even started wearing a miniature version of the shovel around my neck. Then I knock on your door, walk up to your parents and say, hey, how you doing? And then they look at me and they say, not so good. You killed our only daughter with a shovel. And then I said, no, I didn't kill your daughter. The phone book did. And you own all the banks. I loved it when Charlie said that. Lucy didn't appreciate it. She threw her sign at Charlie and ran away back to her monks and her mountain. I said, gee, Charlie, I really think you upset her this time. Charlie said, in all this world, there is nothing more upsetting than the clobbering of a cherished belief. I said, man, you got a quote for everything. He said, that was actually Charlie Brown. Half the time Charlie was talking, Charlie was talking about Charlie Brown. But Charlie did have a way of explaining things in his own right. I thought he was wise, you know, and I took the wisdom from his stories and I applied them to my own life. I used to wonder why the Jews would kill Jesus. I learned from Charlie, they did not. I used to wonder why anyone would kill Jesus. I learned from Lucy why they would. You know why? Cause Lucy was fucking crazy. Jesus is still driving people crazy after all these years. He's still got folks shaving their heads, taking vows of silence, celebrating a man who lived for love by shooting up mosques and raining death on anyone who doesn't believe in him. Can you imagine? how fucking batshit crazy he was making people back in the day? When Jesus was actually on the ground talking to people, changing their lives, imagine how crazy people were going in Rome. All the kids growing their hair long to look like Jesus, buying up all his sandals in the marketplace. I mean, he was a rock star. Think about how scared parents were in the 60s because John Lennon had bangs and sang songs about holding their daughter's hands. You know what's scary about that? Everything is scary about that if you have no perspective on the scary-ass future to come. Now imagine you live in the year zero. You raise sheep because that is the only job. You raise sheep and you raise your daughters. And one day, your daughter comes up to you and tells you, hey, my new favorite guy is a Bethlehemian who told me he is God's son and he wants me to hold hands with prostitutes who are my equals. Imagine you're in the Roman government trying to reconcile that. You're liable to do something crazy. And I mean really crazy, not like shaving your head. You're gonna do something crazy to him, to death. Grizzly murder, crucifixion. I told Charlie that, I said, hey Charlie, Jesus drove Lucy so crazy, it makes me understand why the Italians killed Jesus. Charlie said, hey blackhead, you understand why the Italians killed Jesus because you're Italian. I said, Charlie, 
Cut it out with the uh, empty Italian sentiments. You know I love Jesus. He said Italians don't love Jesus. Italians love bad endings. I said, what's that supposed to mean? He said it means, how does every Italian story end? Bad. Faust, dragged to hell. Pinocchio, eaten by a whale. What's the part of Romeo and Juliet you remember the most? I bet it's not the middle. And I said, I remember the part where I was watching it in school and my uh, substitute teacher tried to cover up Olivia Husey's huge titties. And Charlie said Italians love two things about Jesus. They love the magic beginning and the bad ending. That's why when the Italians celebrate Jesus, they are either celebrating Christmas or hurting someone who does not. I thought that was a little morose. Charlie had gotten a little morose in his early 30s. He'd always been melancholy, but as a little boy, he had a sense of humor about the world, you know? As a man, he'd turned that sense of humor against the world. It made me sad to see. When we were children, it, it seemed like Charlie could do anything, outthink anyone. There was this light inside him, which I'd always admired, and I don't know when or why, but that light went out. When Charlie turned 33, it seemed like he couldn't do anything. He couldn't keep a job, he couldn't leave his mother's house. He couldn't do anything but sit with me on his bedroom floor and read the same old Peanuts comics he'd been poring over since we were eight years old. I remember once I told him, stop reading these fucking comic books and write one. You have all this potential and you're wasting it. He said, there is no heavier burden than a great potential. I said, that's great, write that down. He said, that's Charlie Brown. And if I can't write up a quote as good as one of his, I don't want to write at all. Lately, that was Charlie's line for everything. He'd tell a great joke. I'd say, you tell great jokes. Tell one on stage. He'd say, if I can't tell a joke as good as one of Stephen Wright's, I don't want to tell a joke at all. I said, you tell funny stories. Do what I do. Make an audio channel. Tell stories. It costs no money, and you don't even have to write them down. Charlie said, if I can't tell a story as funny as the Minute Hours, I don't want to do it at all. And that pissed me off, because it never stopped me. But everything seemed to stop Charlie. That's why he's a character in my story and not out here telling you his. He couldn't tell you anything now. He's past. That's life. It ends. And it ends quickly if you let it. And you never get to come back except as a character in someone else's story. Unless you're Jesus. And you get a three-day reprieve. But Charlie Greenstein was not Jesus. That's why I'm always telling stories about Charlie Greenstein. Gives him a chance to come back. I've always told stories about Charlie, even when he was around. I always celebrated Charlie right to the very end. The week he died, I went all over town telling my stories of Charlie and Lucy and how he told her off when she took her vow of silence. And as soon as Lucy went back up Mount Baldy, I was telling everyone how Charlie brought her down a peg. I recited his whole spiel about how Santa celebrated Jesus the right way, as you know when I basically repeated it to you as my own original idea. But man, did Santa have the right idea. How do you celebrate Jesus? You be a Jesus to everyone. Do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. What do you want others to do unto you? Give presents, bingo bingo. Santa's closer to Jesus than anyone. And as I told these stories about Charlie, I realized I felt closer to that young man than anyone else living. And if he was depressed, it was my job to lift him back up. How do you lift up the ones closest to you? Communicate with them regularly? Convince them to go to therapy? No! You celebrate them. You celebrate them the right way. I wanted to do for Charlie Greenstein 
what Santa did for Jesus. I said to myself, what makes old Charlie so different from Jesus Christ? Sure, Jesus had a ton of great quotes, but you could say the same thing about Charlie. Jesus did a ton of things that were bananas, and that simply cannot be said of my friend Charlie. He did nary a thing his whole life. But surely the similarities don't stop there. Jesus was a known giver. Charlie was always giving you a hard time, but in the event that you were having a hard time already, he'd always give you something to laugh about. A funny story or a quote from Peanuts. So I decided that's what I was gonna do. I was gonna give everyone in town the Charlie Greenstein experience. His quotes, his stories. And that's what I did. I went to every house in town, knocked on every door and asked everyone who'd listen, hey, have you heard the good word of Charlie Greenstein? And they said, what, do you mean like that he's a person? Yeah, of course. New Jersey's a very small state. Everyone's heard of everyone. Then I'd say, but do you believe in him? With a few exceptions, they'd say, he's a funny kid, I guess. Got a lot of potential, but he's a little morose. I don't know if he'll ever do anything with it. And then I'd tell them a story about Charlie and Lucy. I'd tell them the stories exactly how they happened, beat for beat, word for word. And you know what they'd do? Sort of chuckle, if even. A few key members of the Italian community even brought up some very negative stereotypes, which I won't repeat here, but there was the problem. I can't tell you these stories half as good as Charlie could. I couldn't give the world the gift that Charlie gave to me, and door after Italian door was getting slammed in my face until finally I had an idea. I said to myself, it's time to steal some ideas. And that's what I did. I was standing in front of Nick Castatucci's house. I had just told him a very elaborate story about Charlie Greenstein, and he had replied with a far more elaborate story about who's in control of Hollywood. And just as he was about to slam the door in my face, I said, wait! Nick said, what? I said, you know what Charlie Greenstein used to do when he was a little boy? Nick said, what? I said, he used to sit outside of his house with a big sign that said, psychiatric help five cents. And he'd put it up like you'd do a fucking lemonade stand. And Nick said, is that really true? I said, I swear to Charlie Greenstein. Nick said, but what would happen to the stand when he left? And I told him. He'd put up an additional sign that said, the doctor is out. Nick said, that's fucking delightful to think about. And I know what you're thinking. That's a really implausible reference for an adult man not to know about. And most anywhere else in the world, you'd be right. But this story, like all great stories, takes place in New Jersey. And the Peanuts books are books. And no one in New Jersey has read one of those except for the Bible. And so it was at every door I knocked upon. I'd tell a story about Charlie Greenstein, I'd get a polite laugh, and then I'd steal a story from Charlie Brown. Then I'd get their attention. I'd tell a story about the time Charlie Greenstein hotboxed a bathroom at Target, which is true. And then I'd say, but did you know he had this fucking dog used to sit up on top of his doghouse, pretend it was a fucking plane? They'd say he'd sit up on the fucking doghouse. I'd say making plane sounds all the while. And that was delightful for most people to think about. I saw a lot of hard days get easier and a lot of faces light up where it seemed the light had gone out a long time ago. And I'd look those people in those faces and say, now do you love Charlie Greenstein? And I'd get a few yeses, but a few key members of the Italian community said, no way, Jose. So finally I got another idea. This one I stole from Charlie. 
I realized it wasn't enough just to give these people a bunch of old quotes. If these particular Italian people were going to truly love Charlie Greenstein, I'd have to give them a bad ending. I was standing in front of East Street Band hype man Stephen Van Zandt's house. I told him a story about how Charlie Greenstein was friends with a lesbian whose first name was Peppermint. He said, that's fucking delightful. I said, do you love him? Stephen said, I already let one steen into my heart. There ain't enough room for two. I said, that's fine. But I didn't tell you how the story ends yet. He said, how's it end? I said, bad. He said, bad. I said, bad. He said, how bad? I said, little Charlie was fucking murdered. He said, ooh. Licking his fucking chops like I just showed him a hot piece of ragot. I said, yeah, he was fucking murdered on the best day of his life. Steve grinned, man, that's bad. Then I told him the real story of Charlie. I said, yeah, he'd been funny ever since he was a kid, but he was the kind of kid who loved comedy too much to be bad at it. But then one day, he just climbed to the top of Mount Baldy, and he performed the best stand-up set of all time, and everyone saw. Wow, said Steve. And then what happened? I said, then they fucking murdered him. Van Zant started sweating so hard he had to unbutton the vest he was wearing with no t-shirt underneath. He loosened his bandana as well as the wig underneath it. And he said, who killed him, the monks? I said, sure. He said, fuck. What would anyone want to kill Charlie Greenstein for? He's a rock star. I said, I don't know. Prejudice. The monks love Jesus and people with prejudice think the Jews killed Jesus. Fucking prejudice, Stephen Van Zant smiled. That shit is so bad, I answered. I know it is. I know it is, Stephen Van Zant. And as Steven closed the door, I knew I'd given him some delightful shit to think about. So I felt like I'd really celebrated Charlie the right way. So the next day, I was walking through Target with Charlie Greenstein. Suddenly, we bump into Steve Van Zandt. It's a small state. But I hardly recognized Steven because he wasn't wearing his bandana. He wasn't even sporting the wig he always wore underneath. Steven Van Zandt had a completely shaved head. Through the vest he was wearing without a shirt underneath, I could see him sporting a necklace with a little replica of a shovel tied to it, so I guess that part of my story had made an impression on him. I said, what's up, Steve? Steve said, what the fuck is up with this? I said, what? He says, you know what? This is fucking Charlie Greenstein. I shaved my head for him because I thought he died badly. Now I see you two pimping about the fucking target. Charlie had no idea what was going on. He looked at Stephen Van Zandt like he was crazy. And I started to realize there were a lot of people with not much hair on their heads staring at me. I told all the folks in New Jersey some real crazy stories about Charlie Greenstein, and they believed these stories were true. And if there's one thing I learned from Charlie Brown, it's that there's nothing more upsetting than the clobbering of a long-held belief. And when people in New Jersey get upset, they tend to do upsetting things with shovels. So I said, hey, Steve Van Zandt, hey, people of Target, there's no reason to get upset. They said in unison, yes, there is. You gave us delightful things to think about, but they didn't happen like we thought. I said, sure they did. Charlie said, hey, buddy, are you sure about that? I said, yes, Charlie, I'm sure about that. 
As surely as you waited every Halloween to see that great big fucking pumpkin. As surely as you literally had a dog who was best friends with a bird named Woodstock. I am sure that you performed the greatest comedy performance of all time and then were killed for it. Stephen Van Sant said, If he was killed for it, then what's he doing here? Hey, yeah, said someone else. And then I said, He came back. He came back? I said, He came back. Charlie Greenstein's jokes were as good as his death was bad. So God called a mulligan and let him come back. Stephen Van Zandt says, I don't understand. That means that this was a bad ending with a happy ending? I said, Stephen, I think you understand perfectly. And so began a biblical state of reverie. Stephen Van Zandt began thrashing wildly in the target, tipping over shelves of discounted meat products into shelves of discounted paint into shelves of discounted Christmas decorations. A hundred competitively priced nativity sets were crushed as the golden paint mixed with the bargain beef. Someone shouted, Charlie Greenstein lives! It's a Christmas miracle! And someone else corrected him, no. It's a Greenstein miracle, and we need to celebrate it the right way. The message must be brought on high. We need to go to the top of Mount Baldy and deliver Charlie's message to the heretics who rose up against him. Let the monks at Mount Baldy see the true face of the Lord, and let them hear the truly funny jokes he's known for telling. Yeah, I want to see that, said Steve Van Zandt. Then let's fucking go, I said. And so Charlie Greenstein and I hiked up Mount Baldy with a host of Italians at our back. Charlie had had it with me. He said, I can't fucking do this. I said, of course you can. This is the best crowd of all time. They love you. They love your stories. Charlie said, they love the stories you stole from Peanuts, you idiot. I said, oh, whatever. You know who else stole stories? Jesus Christ. Charlie said, what are you talking about, Jesus Christ stole stories? I said, Jesus Christ probably stole stories. Guy got his start about 2,000 years ago. No one had a camera. And in every city he went, there were like 10 people who knew how to write. Do you think he was out there every day, giving every Roman he saw like a fresh hour of content? Or do you think he had a solid 30 minutes of material that he stole out of some old sacred text that he knew killed, sprinkled in a few personal anecdotes, and then waxed poetic about some things he'd seen on the road, and that was that. I mean, guy's a genius, don't get me wrong, but wasn't there a guy before him named John the Baptist who cleaned people's feet? And didn't he get his head cut off for cleaning people's feet? And after he got his head cut off for cleaning people's feet, did not Jesus go around saying, Hi, my name is Jesus Christ. I clean feet. Charlie said, So what are you saying? Jesus is a hack? I'm saying, no, I'm saying it is what it is. That's life on the road. You're out late, partying with a bunch of prostitutes and wise men. One of them tells a funny story about a grain of pepper. The next week, Jesus is up on the mountaintop touring his new sermon about a pillar of salt. You tell your story, and if it's any good, it winds up in someone else's parable. So don't worry about what Charles Schultz would think tonight, okay? He's dead. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Charlie said, Jesus is also dead. And I said, man, you're going to kill it tonight. You got a quote for everything. I thought about how proud I was that my pal was not only going to do the thing he'd always wanted to do, he was going to be good at it. Charlie was funny. He could really kill. 
When we reached the top of the mountain, I felt a great sense of relief that I'd chosen to scapegoat the monks on Mount Baldy as the killers of New Jersey's newest Christ figure, because their vows of silence made it impossible for them to renege any of the specific details of my story. But that relief went away the second I saw old Lucy waiting for us at the other end of the mountain. She was kneeling on the edge of a cliff, holding out a football with Charlie's name on it. Lucy, said Charlie. Yes, Charlie, Lucy wrote on the back of a sign, which took a long while because she was still holding the football. Lucy, said Charlie, can you tell me what you're expecting to happen here? Lucy scribbled down her answer. I'm expecting you to kick the football, but what happens after that is a surprise. Charlie said, why would it be a surprise for me to die after you pull the football away? That is literally the oldest trick in a book that I often read. Pull away a football, said Stephen Van Zandt, and let the guy trying to kick it fall flat on his face? That's some delightful shit to think about, he chuckled. And indeed, the idea of a cruel and violent prank was regarded as hilarious by the gathered mass of Italians who hooted and hollered for Charlie to go for it. I'm not going to pull away the football, Lucy wrote. But if I did, it would be funny. It would be so funny you wouldn't have to do anything funny again for the rest of the night. I would die, said Charlie. I'd fall off a mountain. Then you would never have to do anything funny ever again, Lucy wrote. You'd never have to try and you'd never have to fail. You'd be free from the tyranny of expectation. You'd leave them all laughing without ever having to say a word. Lucy was pure evil and Charlie was game. He ran right towards that football and right over the edge of Mount Baldy. And he died at the age of 33 years old. I think about him all the time. I still tell stories about him all the time. Everyone does. Everyone in New Jersey is always telling that story of the hilarious time when Charlie Greenstein died not for our sins, but for shits and giggles. I've heard rumors that the monks at the top of Mount Baldy even stopped celebrating Christ altogether and now worship Charlie, drawing little mandalas of his epic fall when the nutting them blow away in the wind as he did so many years ago. Ironically, living at the top of a mountain and doing nothing with your life seems like a fitting way to celebrate Charlie. I've thought about heading up there myself from time to time. I can't say my life would be terribly different, but at the end of the day, I'm too vain to shave my head. So I celebrate Charlie in my own way, by telling his stories and sitting on my bedroom floor and reading old Peanuts cartoons. Last year on his birthday, I even read a biography on Charles Schultz that old Charlie Greenstein had been trying to get me to read when he was alive. It's interesting stuff. It turns out that when Charles Schultz was a boy, he literally had a dog named Snoopy. But the real Snoopy was mean as hell. It bit everyone in town except for Charles Schultz. Interesting stuff. There was also a real Charlie Brown and a real Linus. They were both artists who worked in an illustration collective with Charles Schultz. He spent, you know, his entire career basically reliving things which, by the end of that career, had happened 60 years ago. I wonder what that means. What does it mean to sit at your desk drawing 18,977 comic strips, day after day, obsessing over things that happened to you as a little boy. Drawing all those times, Charlie Brown's little circle of a head. I don't know. But I know that I think about the life of Charlie Brown as often as I think about my own friends long past. 
I know in times of hardship, I've often returned to the wisdom of those little boys and dogs which Charles Schultz drew not so long ago. He'd be 100 years old this year. God only knows what this world will look like 100 years from now, but I do know one thing. If this cruel and crazy world still has children on it, 100 years from now, they'll still be reading Peanuts. Merry Christmas.